Shakespeare Hall, by invitation of many citizens, Edward Payson Weston, the Great Walkist, will appear at the above-named hall on Friday evening, February 14, 1868, when he will deliver his lecture on athletic sports and relate in detail the incidents and experiences of his great walk from Portland to Chicago. 1,316 miles in 25 days. During the course of his remarks, he will explain the 100-mile failures and the cause of his fatal stop at Connaught, Ohio, after walking 91 miles in 21 and one-half hours. Also, by request, that all may see him as he appeared on the road, Mr. Weston will don the famous costume worn by him on his recent unparalleled journey and walk one mile around the hall inside of ten minutes, showing his various gates while on the road. Admission, including reserved seats, 50 cents. Gallery, 25 cents. Doors open at 7 to commence at 8 o'clock. The sale of reserved seats will begin at 9 o'clock on Wednesday morning at Charles W. Cornell's bookstore. Hi there, this is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode four. That ad you heard before the opener relates directly to today's subject, which is Edward Payson Weston and the pedestrian craze of the 1870s. Who was Edward Payson Weston? Well, let's go over to Wikipedia. Edward Payson Weston, 1839 to 1929, was a notable pedestrian who was largely responsible for the rise in popularity of the sport in the 1860s and 1870s. And that's enough of that. This isn't a podcast about reading Wikipedia at you. This is a podcast where I share my historical investigations. So, that ad that you heard appeared in all three Syracuse newspapers every day between February 10th and 14th when the event happened. Now, I'm going to backtrack to December just to give you a sense of the buildup to this event and just how well-known this guy was. Oh, and keep in mind that everything I read can be found by following the link to the blog in the show notes. So, this is from the Syracuse Journal, Wednesday evening, December 4th, 1867. General news. One of Weston's old shoes, with proper attestation of its genuineness, was received by mail at Portland, Maine, with the following inscription on the tag attached to the package— one of Weston's shoes, procured at enormous expense by the citizens of Cleveland, Ohio, and presented by them to the citizens of Portland, Maine, is a monument to the enterprise of one of its citizens. 
I think it's fantastic that the newspapers are heralding this guy's ephemera. But get a load of this. It's from the same paper, Weston, of his return. It is said that Weston, on his return, will stop at Syracuse for a few hours and visit Isham's Photograph Gallery, number 8 South Salina Street, and sit for some card photographs, for he says it is the cheapest place to get pictures he has found on his route from Portland to Chicago. They are making the best card pictures for $2 per dozen, and sometimes two or three extra thrown in at that. And for $2, they get up a nice large photograph with a splendid frame, albums he has in great variety, for the holidays, which he is selling at about half the usual prices. Please call and satisfy yourselves at number 8 South Salina Street over Everson's Hardware Store, M.B. Isham. The guy is merchandising. He's setting up agreements with local sellers and selling his merch. This is fantastic. This is what I always say about this project. One of the most delightful parts about it is seeing how newspapers from 150 years ago so closely resembled social media and media in general of modern times. We see that same ad in The Courier, and then let's skip forward to January 21st, 1868. This is the Syracuse Journal again. Weston, the pedestrian, does not seem to know whether to turn lecturer or comedian. The best thing he can take to is his legs. Uh, okay. That sound you just heard from me? Yeah, that happens a lot when I read these newspapers. There are endless columns of social minutia, who's visiting whom, and you've got these droll puns, and then you come across something like this that is harder to unpack than an obvious pun. Sometimes the, the social mores are so difficult to parse that you can't even tell whether it's positive or negative. I think this one is saying that people are sick of hearing from him. Maybe he's getting above his station, trying to be too funny, trying to be too uh, highfalutin. Uh, but in any event, it sounds like they are sick of hearing about him because of that last line, the best thing he can take to is his legs. Now let's skip forward to February 6th, which puts us eight days before the event in Syracuse. This is from the Syracuse Journal. Weston, the pedestrian, will appear in Buffalo on Monday evening next. Skipping to another article in the same paper. Edward Payson Weston, the pedestrian, who passed through this city last fall on his walk from Portland, Maine, to Chicago, Illinois, is in town. He goes to Rome this afternoon, where he lectures and walks this evening. He may return to this city for a similar purpose at some future time. Yet another article in the same paper. Mechanics Fair, 14th Night, All That Glitters Is Not Gold. Now, I have to interject here and give you some background on what the Mechanics Fair is. A cursory examination of the newspaper articles would lead you to believe that the Mechanics Fair is something much closer to its name than it actually was. You'd think it was all about local manufacturing, and to be sure, a lot of that was represented, and it is a fascinating cross-section of the broad array of items from farm products to machinery that were made right there in the Syracuse area. But if you read the articles more in depth, you get the sense that it was much more than that. It was this bizarre, it was a hodgepodge of 
artwork and entertainment in addition to what would normally come to mind when you think of the words mechanics fair. So when you hear mechanics fair, just think bizarre. And here's Edward Payson Weston right in the middle of it. The attendance at the fair yesterday afternoon was large, embracing large deputations from the surrounding towns and villages. In the evening, an audience sufficiently large to fill the hall to its utmost capacity assembled to witness the performance of the beautiful drama entitled Still Waters Run Deep, Miss Dargon, Mrs. Middleton, Messieurs Henley, Party, and Middleton, each personated their respective roles in a manner which won bursts of applause from the audience. Mr. E.P. Weston, the pedestrian, was present at the fair last evening, and being recognized, calls were made for him, and President Carroll invited him to respond. He stepped upon the stage, and after an introduction by President Carroll, he made a few remarks thanking the citizens of Syracuse for the courtesies extended to him when on his trial tramp, and especially the mayor and police for protection against the crowd. This evening, the favorite drama of All That Glitters Is Not Gold is to be brought out with an excellent cast. The art gallery still continues to be visited by large crowds during the day and evening. None should fail to visit it. The usual premiums for bread are to be awarded on Wednesday of next week. Persons who desire to compete for the premiums, which will be announced hereafter, are requested by the management of the fair to have the bread ready for exhibition on Wednesday evening of next week. Huh? Was I right? Bizarre. And there's Edward Payson Weston doing his self-promotion right in the middle of it. And how is that for a humble brag? Oh, thanks to the police for protecting me against the crowds. Checking in on the journal, on February 11th we see... Weston at Shakespeare Hall! On Friday evening of this week, Edward Payson Weston, the great pedestrian, gives an entertainment at Shakespeare Hall when he will deliver his lecture on athletic sports and relate, in detail, the incidents and experiences of his great walk from Portland to Chicago, 1,316 miles in 25 days. One of the interesting features of his familiar talk will be his explanation of his 100 miles failure and the cause of his fatal stop at Connaught, Ohio, after walking 91 miles in 21 and one-half hours. Mr. Weston will wear the well-known costume worn by him during his great pedestrian feat, and will walk around the hall one mile within ten minutes, in which he will exhibit his various gates while on the road. We expect to see a crowded house on Friday evening next. Tickets for reserved seats can be secured tomorrow morning at nine o'clock at Cornell's bookstore. So, sorry about the repetition. I'm going to try to keep that to a minimum. Obviously, that was very similar, but not quite the same as the advertisement that I read before the opener. On a visual level, and you can see this on the blog, this is just an article. There's no bold print, no loud headlines. So I don't know whether Weston's people paid for this as well, or whether the journal just put it in there to fill column space. Going forward to the journal on February 12th, we see another condensed version of that same article, and then going to the Courier and Union on February 12th. Here we're getting into some meat. The great pedestrian, Weston the Walkist, will hold a grand levy at Shakespeare Hall on Friday evening. 
The accounts from our Western exchanges speak in glowing terms of Mr. Weston and say that his lecture and illustrations of fast walking are very interesting and have been witnessed by crowded houses. The Buffalo Courier says that Mr. Edward Payson Weston, the famous pedestrian, gave an entertainment at St. James Hall last evening to a highly respectable audience. In his lecture, which lasted over an hour, he cited Grecian and Roman history in favor of displays of physical strength, activity, and power of endurance, and combated the idea, entertained by certain people, that they were demoralizing. Getting away from the historical justification for exercising one's physical capabilities in a legitimate way, which was quite interesting, he took up the history of his walk from Portland to Chicago, and dwelt at some length, and with much earnestness of feeling, on his failure to make his hundred miles, and his disastrous stop at Connaught, Ohio, after walking 91 miles in 22 and a half hours, he reflected very severely upon the conduct of the parties who traveled with him, and handled the individual in whom he had placed the most confidence without gloves. The talk was frequently applauded, and at its close he donned his walking uniform for a walk around the hall. He first walked to show his three-mile gait on the road, then his four-mile gait, and next his five-mile gait. He then started to make his mile within ten minutes, making it necessary to describe the circuit of the hall twenty times. The walk was highly exciting, and the feat was accomplished in seven and a half minutes precisely. The announcement of the time was hailed with applause. Those who had not seen Weston before were enthusiastic, and many of those who had could only express their admiration by speaking of him as Dexter on two legs. Everyone seemed satisfied with the entertainment. The Standard on the 12th has a condensed version of the same article, and then skipping ahead to the 14th, back to the journal, Pedestrian, Shakespeare Hall, blah, 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 the same stuff, but then in the second paragraph we get a bit of a different spin on it. Weston, the great walkist, appeared before a good-sized and highly respectable audience at St. James Hall last evening. Weston showed that he was a good talker as well as a good walker. He gave a description of his famous journey from Portland to Chicago and showed satisfactorily that he was not responsible for the failure to make 100 miles in 24 hours. While indulging in no unwarrantable accusations against those who managed him during the trip, he thoroughly demonstrated his innocence of any collusion to lose the race. He gave some sensible hints in regard to the benefits of pedestrianism, which were well received by the audience. At the conclusion of his lecture, Mr. Weston will proceed to walk a mile in the hall, to do which he will have to walk around the hall 19 times. The furor created by Mr. Weston on his passage through our city last fall will, no doubt, call out a crowded house to see him and hear his explanation of his great trip. Going to the Courier and Union, we see the same information repeated, but then we get a little detail that we didn't have before. The hall is 264 feet around it and involves the necessity of his walking the distance 20 times to make an old English mile. Mr. Weston feels grateful for the honors shown him here on a former occasion, 
and we have no doubt that his mile walk this evening will be a fine specimen of what tall traveling he can do. In Cleveland recently, the skating rink there was crowded with the elite of the city to witness his pedestrian feat. The assemblage was enthusiastic and the press highly complimentary. We look to see a goodly number in attendance at Shakespeare Hall this evening. The Standard gives a short summary which concludes with, Weston had a fine audience at Buffalo Monday evening, and the papers of that town speak well of his lecture and the whole evening's entertainment. When Weston passed through here on his tramp, thousands and thousands stood and walked and rode and ran to see him and only got a glimpse of him after all. The disappointed can see him tonight. So, the newspapers are playing this up like crazy, and we're almost at the event that happened 150 years ago this week. But before we go there, I need to pause for a second and give you some background. I'm a distance runner, so I know a little bit about what these times mean. I've done four marathons, and my personal record marathon pace equates to an average speed of about 8.35 per mile. Weston did a mile in seven and a half minutes. Now, granted, my race was 26.2 miles, and he was demonstrating his one-mile best walking pace. But still, that's crazy fast power walking. So that gives you some sense of the spectacle that these people were going to see. All right, let's get to it. Let's go to the next day and see what the newspapers had to say about it. This is the Syracuse Journal, Saturday evening, February 15, 1868. Weston at Shakespeare Hall. Shakespeare Hall was filled last evening by an interested audience on the occasion of Mr. Edward Payson Weston's lecture and walk. His story of his great and renowned walk to Chicago was of a very interesting character, and he related with much earnestness of feeling his failure to accomplish the 100 miles and his fatal stop at Connaught, Ohio. He spoke of the four men who attended him as being wooden men and reflected very seriously and severely upon their conduct towards him. He stated that when he first started on his walk, he engaged what he supposed them to be four sound honest, able-bodied men, to take care of him. But before he had been two days on the road, he found that he had to take care of them. His explanation was entirely satisfactory to those assembled, as was manifested by the loud applause which he received, and fully showed that his failure in accomplishing the feat was attributable to the base and unpardonable conduct of the four men who accompanied him. At the conclusion of his explanation, Mr. Weston stated that if God spared him, next summer he would perform a task that would make the 100-mile feat look small. He spoke in grateful terms of the treatment he had received at the hands of the people of the West, and of the services rendered him by Mr. H. W. Chittenden of this city. Mr. Weston, at the conclusion of his lecture, donned his walking costume and exhibited his three, four, and five-mile gates after which he commenced the feat of walking a mile inside of ten minutes, which he accomplished in seven minutes and fifty-four seconds. He was loudly cheered at the conclusion of the feat. We hope Mr. Weston may see fit to repeat his lecture in this city at no distant day. Okay, that seems a little underwhelming. Let's go over to the Daily Courier and Union. Weston, 
Mr. Weston, the champion pedestrian, held a grand levy at Shakespeare Hall last evening, which was attended by a large audience of our first-class citizens. His lecture consisted of a clear statement of the manner that obstacles were thrown in his way to prevent him from making his 100 miles in 24 hours. After the lecture, he traveled around the hall, making one mile in seven minutes and 54 seconds. Well, gee, that was even less whelming. Uh, that didn't give us any more information than we already had a dozen times in the advertisements and small write-ups. All right, let's go over to the Syracuse Daily Standard. Weston, the great pedestrian, Edward Peyton Weston, had a good audience at Shakespeare Hall last evening, notwithstanding the throng at the fair. We had time to spend but a few minutes there, and therefore are not prepared to speak of his lecture, though we hear it spoken well of by persons present. After the lecture, he donned the suit in which he walked from Portland to Chicago and after exhibiting his several gates, walked around the hall times enough to make a mile in 7 minutes, 54 seconds. What? That's it? After all that build-up, we get nothing but those three articles? And the reporter from the Daily Standard didn't even bother to stay there for more than a couple of minutes? Ah, I'm getting the sense that this was a lot more hype than actual excitement. Also, not for nothing, Weston comes across as a wanker. He's supposedly this big famous hero of pedestrianism, and when he comes to town, he spends an hour plus apparently spending most of his time talking shit about the guys who were with him. Oh, I would have done awesome, but, you know, these guys that I thought were great, they turned out to be real jerks, and they ruined everything for me. Although I will say I softened on that position after I read that previous article more carefully. Remember the one where he mentioned how some people had accused him of throwing the race? Apparently, there was a lot of money riding on this. And when I think of all the research I've done into horse racing in the latter half of the 19th century and on into the early part of the 20th, that makes total sense. There were probably a lot of people betting huge sums of money on this race, so any accusations of throwing the race had to be dealt with very vocally. Anyway, that's it for the event 150 years ago this week. Now, let's follow the history forward a little bit. I was curious when I read the Wikipedia article about the popularity of the sport in the 1860s and 1870s, because I know how easy it is for summaries that general to be inaccurate. So I went to FultonHistory.com, and I ran a search of Syracuse newspapers that contained the words pedestrian race, pedestrian contest, walking race, or walking contest, and entered different date ranges. When I entered 1860 to 1872, I got nothing, so apparently the sport hadn't really taken off yet. I extended the date to 1873, got one hit. Extended again to 1874, one more. Extended to 1875, no new ones, just those two that I just mentioned. But you extend the date range to 1880, and the results jump up to 105. So, again, one result for walking race, 
walking contest, pedestrian race, pedestrian contest for Syracuse newspapers. One result for 1873, one result for 1874, 103 results for 1876 through 1880. So in the latter half of the 1870s, the sport of pedestrianism saw a massive explosion in popularity. Let's check out those two articles from 1873 and 1874. Syracuse Daily Journal, Thursday evening, May 27, 1873. The athletic sports at Yale College for the benefit of the Navy will take place on the first of next month. The Yale Shooting Club will head the program with an exhibition of their skill. There will be a half-mile race, two-mile, and 200 yards running races, running, standing, high and long jumps, throwing of the baseball, two hurdle races, 150 yards, nine hurdles, and 200 yards, 12 hurdles, walking race, and a consolation race at the close. So in this article, walking races get two words. But go ahead to 1874, Syracuse Daily Journal, Friday evening, October 16th. Manly Sports at Williams College. At Williams College, the students believe in the culture of physical as well as mental power. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's pretty long, but I'll skip ahead here. The students are accustomed to races annually to show the progress made in athletic sports during the year. Uh, accordingly, the athletic sports for 74 came off last Wednesday and were held at the Blackington Trotting Park. They consisted of running, jumping, walking, etc. The chief feat of the day was the five-mile walking race won by Michael E. Driscoll of Elbridge, Onondaga County, New York, in 48 minutes and 37 seconds, beating the Saratoga time of last year. This we believe to be the best time made here or anywhere. The standing long jump was one, yada, yada, yada. Now, I'm going to jump forward to 1879, and I'm going to jump over to Seneca County, because it just so happens a while ago I read a bunch of articles from that time and place, and they're delightful, and I've been looking for an excuse to share them, and this is perfect. The Seneca County Courier, Seneca Falls, New York, Thursday, May 8, 1879. We have remarked in another place that the walking mania has struck Waterloo, but we had no idea when we wrote the first item that we would get two doses in one week. Such is the case, however, as a second contest is announced to take place at the Academy of Music on Saturday evening of this week between William H. Manning of Ithaca and George M. Ford and John DeWitt of Auburn. It will be a heel-to-toe contest for the championship of Central New York. If you don't know how to walk, you can see these fellows do it by paying 15 cents. Another article. The walking mania has finally struck Waterloo, and a 15-mile contest, go as you please, is announced to take place at the Academy of Music this evening. According to the bills, there are three contestants, two from Waterloo and one from Geneva, the purse is $50, 25 to the first, 15 to the second, and 10 to the third. By the payment of 25 cents at the door, you can get inside and see the boys perform, or you can stand on the street corner and watch the legs of any male passerby and thus witness the same kind of work and keep the silver quarter to spend when Her Majesty's ship Pinafore arrives at this port. 
yet another article. The 100-mile walk to begin next Tuesday evening at Daniels Hall between Brown, Johnson, and King promises to be an exciting event owing to the record the two first named made in the recent match. King has not walked here, but it is claimed by his friends that he will prove the better man in the coming race. The match will begin at 8 o'clock p.m. The Seneca Falls band will be in attendance. Articles of agreement have been signed by the pedestrians and management, which will be read from the stage immediately preceding the start. The 25-mile walk at Johnson Hall last Friday evening between Crosby, Dolan, and Dernan was won by Dolan in five hours and five minutes, the men being off the track 25 minutes in the meantime. When Dolan had completed his 25th mile, Crosby had made 24 miles and 2 laps, and Dernan 23 miles and 10 laps. Crosby walked the easiest but did not have the endurance of Dolan who was a good walker and would make a strong competitor if he was entered for the long-distance walk next Tuesday. Dolan received $8.60, Crosby $5.40, and Dernan $3.20. None of the men were the worse for the walk and were about their business the next morning as usual. And here's another little article from the same newspaper. One hundred years hence, history will allude to the present pedestrian mania as the leg end of the 19th century. Okay. And here's the last one for this same issue. A pedometer is a machine to accurately measure the distance a person walks in a given time. When a businessman, after supper, Saturday evening, told his wife he was only going down to the office to square the books... She slyly attached a pedometer to his leg, and when he returned, she discovered that the office was 15 miles from the house. P.S. A night at billiards entails considerable pedestrianism. Williams. This is a great example of one reason why looking at old newspapers is so gratifying, particularly in the late 1800s, column after column of newspapers that are only four pages long are filled with drollery and punnery. You read enough of it, and it becomes awe-inspiring how much time these newspaper people must have spent dreaming up these witty little nothings. Now, here's the one I've really been wanting to share. It's from a week later. The Seneca County Courier, Seneca Falls, New York, Thursday, May 15th, 1879. National Honor. It is somewhat surprising and amusing withal to note the significance which is attached to everything of an international character and to the importance which is given to the success which is achieved by the representative of a nation, be that representative in the form of a man or a beast. This is more particularly the case as between the English-speaking people on this and the other side of the Atlantic. When Rowell, an Englishman, succeeded in making the circuit of a sawdust track in New York oftener than the men who lived in this country, it was hailed as a triumph for England, and the touching spectacle of the vast throng that was gathered in Gilmore's garden, worshipping the Union Jack as it enwrapped the form of the victorious pedestrian, 
was calculated to arouse the patriotism of the most indifferent Englishman, and to cause the cheek of every true American to blush for shame and provoke him to say, What a fall was there, my countrymen! The American mind, for the time being, was turned away from the dangers which threatened to destroy our free institutions through partisan legislation at Washington and looked forward to the near future when Mother England would chastise her wayward son for his bad conduct on two different occasions. Now, however, the tables have been turned. The American racehorse, Paroic, goes over the course at Newmarket and crosses the score in front of his English competitors, and the enthusiastic Yankee cries out, Make way for liberty! And climbing to a conspicuous position on the grandstand, he waves the stars and stripes and announces to the crestfallen Englishman that at last the American independence has been rendered permanent by this last international victory, and after his mouth has relaxed sufficiently, he completes his patriotic entertainment by whistling Yankee Doodle. Legs are the medium through which these great national victories have been obtained, the only difference being in the number of legs needed to produce these results. It is not to be wondered at that those who are interested in contests of this kind, either financially or as spectators, should have a choice as to which side should win, but that it should be interpreted as showing national superiority in any sense in which a nation may have a justifiable pride is nonsensical in the highest degree. If lovers of fast horses and admirers of Lorillard's stud choose to clap their hands at seeing Parole's nose in advance as the horses go under the wire, it is nobody's business but their own, but we fail to discover that the result brings with it any national credit or is of any benefit to Americans outside the Lorillards, and yet we find newspapers announcing it not merely as a matter of news, but speaking of it as something of which we as a nation should be proud. What a foot race, a horse race, or a boat race has to do with determining those questions which enter into political economy, those questions which have a bearing upon the religious, political, educational, or industrial interests of a nation, is not explained by any effect they have ever produced. If we can produce iron cheaper than can be done in England, if we can raise more abundant and cheaper breadstuffs, if our various minds are more productive, if we can excel them in our manufactures, if our schools and churches are more prosperous, if we excel in military tactics, if our statesmen are better skilled in the art of diplomacy, then indeed we have cause for congratulating ourselves. And newspapers would be justified in giving prominence to a victory in any of these fields by a double-leaded article in their most prominent columns. We have outlived the defeat we suffered at Gilmore's Garden, and our institutions are none the weaker in consequence of it. Nor are we any stronger since the victory at Newmarket. Whether we succeed or fail in the sporting world is of little consequence, and the results of all contests of this character have no bearing upon national honor or superiority, and are interesting merely as items of news and are only entitled to such a classification." I love that article because it gives me such a clear window into the social media of that time. And yes, I use that word deliberately because think about it, this is exactly like Facebook 150 years ago, and it's 
indistinguishable from Facebook except insofar as the speed at which the exchanges happened. There must be a word for that archetypal role that someone will invariably fill in a conversation about sports where they jump into a conversation like a wet blanket and say, oh, this is not important. Your pride is misplaced. There are much more pressing matters that we should concern ourselves with. And then it degenerates into a flame war. Now, speaking of crotchety people who are fed up with hearing about sports, there's another small article in this same issue that's interesting. The two walking matches held at the Academy of Music on Thursday and Saturday evenings of last week were quite liberally patronized, considering the nature of the entertainment. The town will not suffer for the want of any more. So, it looks like people are starting to feel really fed up with all these walking matches. Now, judging from the tone of both of those last two articles, I expected that that big international walking contest where the American lost had taken place within the previous couple of days. But when I found articles about that event at Gilmore Gardens, I was surprised because it took place a full two months earlier. So if people were indeed talking about it and beating their breasts about it and moaning about it for two solid months, I can understand people's frustration. So here's an article about that big event two months earlier. The Syracuse Morning Standard, Syracuse, New York, Monday morning, March 17, 1879. The International Tramp. The contest ended, and the Astley Belt goes to England. Scenes of the wildest excitement during the closing hours of the contest. The official score, description of the belt, and a sketch of its latest winner. New York, March 15th, Saturday night, the Great Pedestrian Contest equaled, if not excelled, the opening in point, both of numbers and enthusiasm. At 7 o'clock, 7,000 people were present. The pedestrians were encouraged by the most hearty applause. Ladies waved their handkerchiefs and threw bouquets at the contestants as they passed along, and men threw their hats in the air and yelled their loudest. The excitement was extraordinary. Rowell, sure of victory. Early in the afternoon, it was conceded by all that Rowell would take the belt. The chief interest then was as to whether Harriman would make the 450 miles necessary to participate in a division of the gate money. Harriman was very lame and appeared to suffer great pain, but he struggled along gamely. Ennis appeared in fine form during the evening and made some very quick miles. Two laps lost. At 9.25... Ennis had made 472 miles. He was alone on the track. About 9.30, Rowell, Harriman, and Ennis were all on the track together, and Rowell, overtaking Harriman, linked his right arm and walked around, taking him with him. The cheering was loud, but when Ennis came around and linked Harriman's other arm, the applause burst forth in a deafening roar. The three marched along, arm in arm, and dozens of bouquets were hurled at them. The judges announced that the two laps were taken from the score of each man for having received support while going twice around the track. Harriman gets a share of the money. As Harriman neared his 450th mile and Rowell closed up, 
To his 500th, the audience grew perfectly wild with excitement, and as Harriman turned his 450th mile and the great white figure on the blackboard announced the result, a storm of applause seldom heard burst forth, lasting 10 minutes. He completed his 450th mile at 8.42, and a man had to carry him around before him. Several immense bouquets were presented by lady friends. He carried a small American flag over his shoulder, and this appeared to redouble, if possible, the enthusiasm. Harriman completed his 450th mile amid great excitement. This ensured Harriman 20% of the net receipts, and gives the second man 30%, and the first man 50%. 500 miles! When the figures 500 went up opposite Rowell's name on the blackboard, the excitement can scarcely be imagined. This was at three minutes to nine o'clock. Then he put on his ulster, and carrying the American flag over his right shoulder and an immense bouquet in his left hand, he marched around the track twice, a captain of police on one side and his trainer on the other. The band played God Save the Queen, and the feeling of enthusiasm ran very high. Rowell went at once to his hotel, was bathed, rubbed down, and went to bed for four hours, when he was waked up. He was received at the hotel by some twenty ladies and congratulated. He appeared pretty well used up. Harriman completed his 450 miles and three laps at 8.45, and then retired from the track for good. He was surrounded by a host of friends who brought him out of his garden by the 4th Avenue entrance and placed in a carriage and driven to his hotel. He was accompanied by his doctor and will undergo medical treatment to regain his condition. The various floral gifts given Rowell and Harriman were taken to their hotels after them. Plucky Ennis Ennis alone remained on, and he was walking to win a bet of $1,500, which he had on the race. He had backed himself to make 475 miles, and he was determined to win it. He was cheered lustily, and the audience did not diminish, notwithstanding that it was generally known that Rowell and Harriman had left the track. Finally, Ennis accomplished his task at 10 p.m., the applause was tremendous, and he ran his 475th mile in 6 minutes and 55 seconds, the fastest of the contest. This concluded the great walking match, and the vast crowd slowly dispersed. Then there's a tally of the total number of miles made by each man. Official score for the match. Rowell, 500 miles and 180 yards. Ennis, 475 miles. Harriman, 455 miles, 3 laps, and 140 yards. The men were off the track during the whole six days as follows. Rowell, 38 hours, 42 minutes, 50 seconds. Ennis, 36 hours, 21 minutes, 53 seconds. Harriman, 38 hours, 1 minute, 21 seconds. The total receipts during the contest were $51,000. By an arrangement made at the beginning of the match, it was decided that $1,000 should be set apart out of the receipts and paid to the man or men who failed to cover 450 miles. Under this arrangement, O'Leary will receive $1,000, Ennis, having covered 475 miles, winning his bet of $1,500. Ennis encouraged. When Ennis had finished his walk, he was enthusiastically cheered, and congratulations were showered on him from all quarters. He then left the building and was taken to the hotel opposite the Hippodrome. Further interesting particulars. 
The following particulars are gleaned from the morning papers. Rowell, for the first twenty-four hours, watched O'Leary closely and husbanded his strength. But after the first day, it was a mere question of judgment with his advisers what lead he should hold. Rowell dogged the footsteps of his competitors because almost all the English professional races are thus contested. It is denied that Rowell, in a private trial in England, made 540 miles. Ennis's extraordinary condition at the close was a mystery and disappointment to his friends. In the first three days, his chances were lost through bad judgment in diet, and on the last three days he was never called upon to do his best. The result was that he was able to do his last mile at a racing speed, a fact which showed that his strength had been reserved until it was too late to utilize it to any purpose. Harriman's failure to do better than he did was due to his inexperience and lack of training. O'Leary's backers say that O'Leary never can and never will again compete for the championship belt. O'Leary is pecuniarily a heavy loser. Ennis challenged Rowell. Ennis challenged Rowell verbally early in the evening to another walk for the belt, as he considered it had been won by the Englishman. Tomorrow, a formal challenge will be sent to Rowell, and Ennis will place $500, according to the stipulations of Sir John Astley, into the hands of the editor of Bell's Life. All right, skipping ahead. Ennis lacked confidence. Ennis was wonderfully fresh at the close of the match. It is thought by many if he had had sufficient confidence in himself to try for the belt from the start and had had the services of a good trainer the first two days, he would have won, as the Englishman's feet were very sore and he had all he could do to retain his lead at the close. It was suggested to Rowell, after he had completed 500 miles, that he should wait in his cottage until 11 o'clock so as to be on hand and make the finish with the others, but he said he was too stiff and long waiting would make him stiffer. The match a bona fide one. The rumors that the match was not bona fide are all bosh. The Englishman was presented with the belt privately and on Monday will receive a check for about $25,000. The lady who presented Rowell with the gold medal was Lady Thornton. Baron Shishkin, the Russian minister, was among the spectators Saturday night. The champion of fair play. In the early hours of the morning, a drunken loafer attempted to assault Rowell. Ennis, who was ahead, stopped, returned on his track, and, addressing the mob, threatened to stop walking if his rival did not receive fair play. Gifts to Rowell. Among the gifts to Rowell was a monster double-twisted loaf of bread, which he could only carry on his shoulder. This caused great cheering. Harriman's condition. It will take Harriman longer to recover from the effects of the walk than the other participants. He probably will not recover until Tuesday or Wednesday. Generous treatment. Rowell's generous treatment of Harriman was much commented on. It is said that whenever an opportunity offered, he encouraged Harriman and even coached him. And had it not been for this coaching, and also Ennis's, Harriman would not have made 450 miles. This is considered all the more worthy of mention because Rowell knew that if Harriman made his time, he, Rowell, would only receive one-half of the gate money, whereas if he failed, Rowell would take three-fourths of it. Harriman's success adds 5% to Ennis's receipts. The winner of the belt. There's a long paragraph about the history of Charles Rowell. 
I'm going to skip that. And then we get to the Astley belt. The trophy won by Rowell is a belt presented by Sir John Astley for competition among the long-distance pedestrians of the world and is now considered the emblem of championship. It is valued at 500 pounds. The first contest for the Astley belt took place at Agricultural Hall, London, March 18th to 23rd, 1878, when O'Leary won, accomplishing 520 and a half miles in 130 hours, 6 minutes, 10 seconds, defeating H. Vaughn, Blower Brown, G. Ide, W. Lewis, G. Hazel, J. McLevy, W. H. Smith, and other noted walkers and runners. On O'Leary's return to America, John Hughes, dubbed the Leper, challenged the champion for the belt. The race was run at Gilmore's Garden, New York, September 30th to October 5th, and resulted in O'Leary's victory. He covered 403 miles, and Hughes but 310. Soon afterwards, P. Napoleon Campana, who was erroneously reported to have done a good six days performance at Bridgeport, Connecticut, challenged O'Leary to a contest under the Astley Belt rules, but not for that trophy, and, the champion accepting, a match for $1,000 was arranged. It took place at Gilmore's Garden, December 23rd to 28th, 1877, and O'Leary won easily, retiring at 10 hours, 40 minutes, 10 seconds, p.m., December 28th. With only 419 miles to his credit, Campana following at 10 hours, 46 minutes, 5 seconds, his score being 257.28 miles. The conditions under which the donor of the belt offered it made it necessary that it should be won three times before it becomes the permanent property of the winner. O'Leary has won it twice and Rowell once. It has been asserted by medical authorities that these conditions virtually prohibit the belt ever being held, since the effects of the strain of a six-day's walk last a lifetime and are more than mortal man can bear up under when undertaken three times. So, that gives you a sense of the sensation surrounding walking races at the end of the 1870s. Now, keep in mind, to get a sense of how much those amounts of money were worth in today's currency, you've got to multiply by at least 25. So the winner, Rowell, got a check for $25,000. That amounts to about $600,000 in today's money. And they said that the total receipts during the contest were $51,000, which amounts to about $1.2 million in today's money. Wow. Before I close, I want to share a thought about Weston's walking event in Syracuse 150 years ago this week. As someone living in 2018, I have a lot of entertainment at my disposal, and it can be difficult to get my head around wanting to go watch someone walk. And it occurred to me, maybe people were looking for a distraction. Of course, as a guy who started a podcast out of sheer existential dread, I wouldn't know anything about that. Anyway, next time... I'm going to take a look at what people might have needed a distraction from. So I hope you enjoyed all the publicity and media and snarkiness and drollness and puns and merchandising and heroism and gallantry and cash that surrounded the walking craze of the 1860s and especially the late 1870s, as it turns out. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. And until next time, seek context.
This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the dying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please. And my love, he stole away. 